Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery, but today is a gift. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Hello and welcome to Jen Taylor Rerouting, where being rude is never acceptable, but sarcasm is welcome and swearing isn't always a bad option. Let's get started. Welcome to Jen Taylor Rerouting. I'm thrilled today. I have Laura Curry um, of lauracurry.com. How are you today, Laura? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I, I'm fantastic because like I told you right before we started recording, every time I kind of read the notes for someone's interview, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is my favorite interview ever. And so I say that <laughs> pretty much every time, but like we talked about, if I could get paid to just interview people. Oh, it's, heaven. It's heaven. It's heaven. It's so fascinating. <laughs> so tell me about, first, let's start with lauracurry.com. And I know if people want to find you, we'll put it in the show notes, but also you're uh, your Instagram and Facebook is Difficult Happens, and you will have a new website up end of August-ish 2018. Yeah, they can still visit lauracurry.com. I'm going to bounce those between each other, but I, yep. my podcast is Difficult Happens, so I want to make sure to get that URL out there too. <laughs> awesome. So tell me about what you do. I know what you do, but I want you to let everyone else know what you do. You know, I help people who's, well, in particular, business owners in high stress, high stakes fields like attorneys or real estate agents or people in finance, people who are dealing with people who are already in distress, communicate effectively so that they can identify actions and reactions that may lead to conflict and kind of lessen those conflicts, understand what a triggered reaction is, where, where boundary breaches happen, and just communicate effectively. So you deal with people high stress and maybe more volatile? Definitely. Yeah. Right. I came from the field of, I was originally an investigative journalist, like I said, and then right. I moved into private investigating where, you know, people are already kind of on edge. It's really that fight or flight. They're living in fight or flight that a lot of the time. And same with the people that I would in, interview when I was an investigator. And then that morphed into becoming a guardian ad litem for the courts in high stakes divorces. So that was the most high stress, high stakes job I had, and everyone was in distress. And I just started to realize that people act and react in very similar ways when they're under pressure and stress, and they cannot communicate effectively. The way that they react basically elicited a negative response, and they couldn't see it. You know, they could, sometimes they'd be saying the same exact thing. I'd be sitting in the courtroom and one side is screaming and the other side is screaming. And it's like, you idiot, you're saying the same thing. <laughs> so. Well, there's a whole brain science behind that too, isn't there? We, Definitely. We didn't mm -hmm. talk about that before, but I know I've read a lot where when you're in certain mode of fight or flight, there are parts of your brain that shut down and parts that are just hyper mm -hmm. aware or alert. So sometimes I think they, yeah, they can't, they can't see it. Right. Right. Well, and there are so many emotions that are protector emotions like fear, like anger, like confusion. That's sole purpose is to protect your psyche and to protect yourself until you can get to a safe environment and then feel the feelings that you need to feel. That's the part that most people miss. <laughs> you gotta feel them at some point. You keep stuffing them down. They turn into all kinds of fun stuff. Oh my gosh. I love that stuff down the emotions. You know, when you're laying in bed at night and you're ready to go to sleep and you're relaxed and you're feeling good. And all of a sudden your brain's like, Hey, tap you on the shoulder. Let's mm -hmm. talk about all the stuff that you don't want to talk about because our brains want to process 
Mm-hmm. They want mm-hmm. to process it and release it. And we're like, why now? And, you know, there's all these memes about how at 3 a.m. that's when you think or when you're in the car and somebody cuts you off and, and you get this massive road rage, like, where did that come from? Mm-hmm. But it's all that stuff you've stuffed in your brain that comes flooding to the front. And that's, that's fascinating to me, but not in a positive, let's work together way. <laughs> but you decided, hey, I'm going to take the highest stress people and I'm going to work with them. I just, I love it. I love difficult things because within difficult is our greatest opportunity for growth and understanding. And we grow exponentially when we dive into the difficult and we dissect it and we own it and we play with it and we turn it into success or into joy or into connection. You can, difficult has a purpose. Every emotion has a purpose. And we all have a comfort emotion, which is not comfortable at all, which is kind of funny, but it's that emotion that we go to at 3 a.m. You know, I'm a shame girl. I, you know, shame comes in, snuggles in, steals the pillow, and you know, it's just, and I just cycle in shame. But that shame's purpose, a, a mask emotion, is to protect me from the fear, the fear that I feel in so many things, and putting yourself out there, you know, and putting yourself out there as a business owner, as a speaker, as a podcaster, as a five foot two woman. <laughs> Are you five foot two? Yeah, I'm, I'm almost bit. five foot nine. So we're on opposite ends of the height spectrum. We both get the same amount of crap for different reasons. Yeah. Yep. All my kids bigger than me. My oh, fiance well. bigger than me. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If he was 4'10", then we had, that would be a totally different discussion. Right. So I, I love what... <laughs> I, lo- I love what you do and I want us to discover why. So let's go back and, and share your story. What year were you born? Just so we have a relation to. Sure. sure. 1968. I am going to be 50 this year. Hey, I was 1970. I'm all nice. about it. I'm right there with you. So 68. So the, uh, the end of the seventies were interesting. Yeah. And so let's go back. Let's talk about where you grew up. Where I grew up in New England, you were in Seattle. Yes. Very polar differences. And discuss with us about that. Yeah. You know, Seattle, it was a, such a weird time. Most people think of Seattle now and they think of how iconic it is and the music and the, the gum wall and the Pike Place Market and grunge and all that kind of stuff. Well, when I was growing up there, it was it was a real confused town. It was going from a solid middle-class town with longshoremen, a lot of fishermen. There still are a lot of fishermen. Um, and Boeing, we were like a one business town. And then the recession hit in the 70s where the oil crisis hit and Boeing was really in trouble. They were looking at almost going under. And there was even a sign on I-5 that said, well, the last person leaving Seattle, turn out the lights. That's how devastating that time was. That time was also a time of integration. So both my parents are college professors and are hippies. And the entire city, well, you know, Seattle, we haven't changed much. We're all a bunch of hippies and hipsters and retro and all that good stuff. So at the time, we were practicing something called integration, which is where they tried to integrate all the schools. So we were bust. The white kids were bust into what there was considered the black neighborhoods. Um, There were really segregated areas. There was Chinatown, there was the Central District, there were the more hoi polloi's, and there was a massive flight. So a lot of people left the city. 
I think that integration and being bust as a child was the single most amazing experience of my life. I went to school with people from every nationality that spoke every single language in beautiful old buildings and got to see how we all have, we're all unique, but with a theme, really. You know? We all have specific ways that we act and react, and it had absolutely nothing to do with the color of your skin or the language you spoke. It's very interesting. But at that time, Seattle started to boom. Heart Technologies, Microsoft, the um, Cancer Research Society, the University of Washington. All of a sudden, we became a huge little town. And there were a lot of... Uh, people coming in and out of the town, a lot of transient people, people moving in from California and Montana. And there were a lot of, what do you call those? Basically like communes. The Love family was there. There were cults. There were basically a lot of cults at the time too, which brings in your sociopaths and your pedophiles. So it was a real strange city at the time. Yeah, that's an understatement, I think. <laughs> and I mean, wow, that's, yeah. That's a lot different. And there wasn't, so it wasn't necessarily lawless. It was just so diverse and growing so quickly because there was a lot of issues with law because of all of that more commune, cult, transient startup companies. And right, mm -hmm. there's a yeah. lot of flux at that time. So I wouldn't call it lawless. It's not like they were trying not to. Um, it's not like the police or anything would, were trying not to uphold the law. It was more that it was such a time of flux with so many different communities almost, right? Back it was then? a real, real culture shift. I don't yeah. think it was going to be like a paradigm shift for the police because it right. used to be kind of neighborhoods. Everybody yeah. knew each other. You know, you went down to the local other people's parents could scold you because <laughs> they all knew right. who you were, you know, where then it kind of morphed into, uh, I have no idea who my neighbors are. I don't know these people. Yeah. I don't know who bought the store. You know, it's, it was different. I mean, I, I've taken the bus my whole life. I used to be, you know, I used to ride the bus when I was seven, eight years old by myself because it was not, you know, it just, it wasn't unheard of, but it became unheard of. You know, I was a free range child. Both my parents were only children who grew up in very protected environments and it just didn't occur to them that their children would be in danger in their own community. So, I mean, it just, it wasn't in their lexicon. <laughs> and I think this is the same for the police. You know, a lot of these things like serial killers, what is that? Serial rapists? What are you talking about? pedophiles? I mean, it, I think it, it just, they didn't have the ability. There's this um, new show kind of talking about the birth of the psychological investigation branch of the FBI. They weren't even, they didn't even correlate a psychosis with um, serial cr crime at, <gasps> until the 70s or 80s. Right. It's amazing for us to think of now. It's like, well, of course they correlate, you know. Well, and that's why, I mean, I did preface this saying the 70s were a very interesting time. And unless you've lived through them, and even as an adult, until I went back and I really studied the 70s because things didn't make sense to me, I, I was astounded at the, you know, women were still put down a lot. The, the sexual revolution that everybody thinks happened in the 60s, it was, there was a lot, there was a lot still going on. Um, there are much different attitudes. And unless you really 
understand the attitudes in the 70s, it doesn't, it wouldn't occur to people. And I mean, I went back and studied it mm -hmm. and it was still, and because, and I lived through it and it was still, I was like, wow, it, it, it's not what people think that it was. So yeah. when you have the 80s. Oh, oh, absolutely. It's the 80s. When you have a city that's growing exponentially and, and so differently, it's not like it grew bigger, but it was all neighborhoods where people knew each other. It grew bigger in a completely different direction at a time when people have to understand, like, there was no psychosis to serial killers or rapists. There was no, mm -hmm. it was just not, it didn't exist. And there was a lot of tolerance for certain behavior in the 70s that we absolutely do not have now. Right. Yeah. You weren't, kids didn't talk back to adults. If, no. if you know, I mean, I, I, there were times where I was scolded for speaking out against um, a grown adult who was acting inappropriately. Nowadays, he would have been arrested, you know, but then you just, kids were, kids had different rules back then. And even into the eighties, and you speak women specifically, my, when my parents divorced, my mom was the breadwinner of the family. I mean, she made the most money, but she, at, in 1985 or 84, when they got a divorce, she went to the bank, all the credit went to my dad. She had to start over from scratch. She couldn't get a credit card. She had been a college professor for 15 years. <laughs> this yeah. is 1985, you know, give me a break. It, it, was, it was a much, a lot has happened in a relatively short amount of time. I mean, we're talking like 30 years, right? 40 mm -hmm. years, a lot. And we're still happened. not there. <laughs> not, not, that's a different podcast. <laughs> so with all of this sort of, city becoming Seattle becoming what it is today there was a lot that they had to process that's kind of a good way to put it I think mm -hmm. so you had pedophiles serial killers now why I know you you told me that you were on your own at 15 mm -hmm. how did that happen why did that happen and free range we were free range when you use that terminology, I was like, yeah, that was great. Because <laughs> in our generation, we weren't afraid of things that kids, that, like I would never let my kids do now how I was raised. Mm -hmm. Not because my parents weren't good parents, because you can't do those same things now. It's not the same world. Mm -hmm. So I miss the free range days. Those were yeah. Days. I do think we need a little more free range these I days. Do too. I think that the parents are way too involved. I mean, there were so many things that happened in my life that I didn't share with my parents at the time. That was not for them to know. And frankly, they didn't share their lives with us either. I don't know where they went when they went out. You know, that was <laughs> adult time. <laughs> True. That yeah. is another good podcast interview also. <laughs> so tell, tell me about when you were 15. You were do, how long did the busing system last with the schools? That, and that is wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Until I graduated from high okay. school. I was shocked when I found out that they don't do it anymore. It's like, oh, and they called it a failed experiment in, in the newspaper reports that I looked into. It's like, seriously, that was the single best experience of my life. Now, true, it, you know, the schools were way overcrowded. I went to Franklin, which had 2,500 kids in it or something. So it was like, there were just way too many people. I ended up graduating from Garfield. But so at the time, my mom was, um, she was getting her uh, master's in counseling, I think. And there was this movement called the Tough Love Movement. And it was kind of like, okay, you want to you wanna act up, you want to act inappropriately, uh, here's some tough love. You know, you can't live here. 
And that's basically what happened was, you know, I was 15 acting, actually I was 14 at the time, acting like a 14 year old and wanting to hang out with my friends. And because my parents were both college professors, my siblings and I all started school at four instead of at five. So I was kind of a young middle schooler and all of my friends were older. Um, and like I say, I'm five foot two. So just the dichotomy of the people that I was hanging out with to me now is, is ludicrous. And it's like, well, of course you were ripe for pedophiles because <laughs> look at you. <laughs> you. You look like you're 10 up until you're 30. So, you know. Which is a good thing when you're 30, but not when you're 20 or 15. Right, right. right. Yeah. And so, you know, at the time they were like, well, you got to, you got to go. And frankly, I think it had more to do with the extinction burst of my parents' marriage. You know, they were already in crisis. I was the youngest. They were just ready to be done, I think. And so, you know, I moved out. I didn't ever drop out of school. I did um, struggle because I had to go to day school and night school and summer school to make up for a lot of the credits that I was missing. But, you know, I couch surfed and I stayed with different people and kind of that was uh, no backsies. <laughs> you did that for like three or four years. Yeah, yeah. Holy there, cow. There was a time that I, you know, I did have a couple roommates and then that's when the first tragedy <laughs> So let's, let's dive right into that. Sure. Jump Should in. Go? No, okay. go for it. Yeah, I don't even know where to start with this. This story is phenomenal. Well, um, yeah, it was, it was a difficult time. So I, was turn, I turned 15, and my girlfriend, Michelle, who had been my best friend since I was about two or three, she was a year older than me. Well, her mom practiced a drunk, uh, <laughs> drunk tough love, which is, you know what, I don't really want a parent anymore. So I'm gonna go hang out with my friends. And here's the house, you figure out how to pay bills and do all that and go to school and chow. So Michelle had a house to herself. Um, she, of course, did not know how to pay bills. And it was about a year when, you know, slowly the lights got shut off. And then People started to notice, why are there only kids in this house? And then, you know, that basically it all went downhill, but it took time. And she dropped out of school and went to work at the Bond to try to, which is now Macy's, but oh, to, to try and, uh, you know, pay the bills. She did the best she could. She had no chance. And that's poor Michelle's life was way more tragic than mine. And just as a side note, um, she was actually murdered recently. And um, the BBC came over and interviewed me for a documentary about her murder. And she was just so long dying, if you know what I mean. Her entire life was a tragedy. And it was almost like I could, it was a cautionary tale. Her life, I was like, okay, that's no good. I'm not going to do that. I need, need, need to be really careful in these situations because she was vic victimized consistently. <laughs> you know, It's like, okay, okay. She's kind of the after school special that I need to watch in order to protect myself. But we had a third roommate, um, Andrea, who moved in. And at the time in Seattle, it was the early 80s. And it was pretty sketch. I mean, it was really scary. You didn't want to go out at night if you were a girl alone. Um, there was this boogeyman stealing women. At first, it was just prostitutes. And so, of course, Seattle didn't care much. And they realized there were several serial killers working at the same time. There was the I-5 corridor killer who has never been caught and has a hundred kills to his name and no one has any idea who this person is and frankly, they'll never catch him. And then there was the boogeyman who is now called the Green River Killer because he dropped a lot of bodies along the Green River. 
Um, but he took anyone. Really, he was an opportunist. Sure, some of them were prostitutes early on, but he took kids on their way home from school and they thought he was a taxi driver for a time because they couldn't figure out how he was getting all these people. Anyway, Andrea disappeared one day and we all just knew that he got her. They didn't find her body until they built the fourth runway on SeaTac Airport, but we knew that she was the last known victim of the Green River Killer. We just knew. And at that point, I realized that I needed a little more protection. So um, I, being an adult now, I look back and say, right, so you went and found a man to protect you. And I did. I went and dated someone who was too old for me and moved in with him. And I was able to, you know, finish my schooling and move on from there. You had several friends that you lost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I lost 15 by the time I was 15. Oh, my God. And some were murder, some were suicide, some were drug overdoses, which, I mean, you're, you're watching this massive tragedy of all these people that are the same age as you. I can't even imagine processing that as a 15-year-old and, and having that volume of losing friends. So did, did it make you want, I, I understand it made you want protection. And I also understand why that seemed like a good way to get protected by having mm -hmm. someone around you. Did it make you more aware of suicide or drug use? Did you stay far away? Did you, how did you process all of this? I think I just lived in fight or flight um, from about 10 on, you know, um, when I was at a party with Christine Sumstad and next morning she was found raped and murdered and stuffed in a box behind Magnolia TV. It's like, okay, so if I'm going to go to a party, I need to make sure that I go in pairs and I come in pairs and leave in pairs. You know, I mean, it just, it, it was just survival at that point. You know, Martha Usher died of a drug overdose, a heroin overdose in front of a 7-Eleven on 3rd Avenue um, on Christmas Eve. And I remember thinking, okay, don't ever fuck with heroin. Don't yeah. touch it, you know. Didn't, didn't quite get that memo with like weed and crack and all that other <laughs> stuff. Uh, whoops. <laughs> and then, and then, I mean, you have these friends that you're losing to suicide and drug overdose and then some to murder. And you have these two mass murderers on the prowl. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't even imagine that. And you're, you're kicked out of your house mm -hmm. on your more, own. Yeah, it was more like if you're going to keep running away and going to parties, yeah. um, don't come back. Right. You know. Still, uh, I can't imagine saying that to one of my kids. Yeah. And you have grown kids. So, so, and then let's talk about, I mean, geez, you said like 10 soldiers, I watched my friends fall. What a horror story to be living. In the meantime, you're having this really good experience with school, although you're having to work really hard to get there. You graduated on time, correct? And yes. You were, you were mm -hmm. 17 then? 17. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. They pushed us through fast back then. Yeah, <laughs> I, I did the same. everybody back. It's weird. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think, maybe neither one is right, but, and you felt like you were living in two worlds. You were, mm -hmm. you were like a split personality. I don't know if I want to say it that way, but you had this whole chaos of Seattle experimenting and then... <laughs> rational society and wanting to be occluded. So mm -hmm. how were you, really, how were you processing and how much did you have to process everything back then just to get yourself through high school? 
Well, it was, I think that I had to understand the different worlds and okay. I had to understand the different cultures and how to, how to act and react within those cultures. So at home, my mom was huge in the deaf and deafblind community. She's the founder of the American Sign Language Interpreting School of Seattle, and she's known around the world for the work that she does. She's been lobbying in Olympia for decades to try and get, this is, I mean, most people will find this dumbfounded, but interpreters in hospitals to make sure they're certified and actually know sign language. Yeah, they haven't passed that law yet. Um, but that's trying, she's been trying to push that through in Olympia. She's an amazing, incredible, woman and she's very very deaf culture very much so and so that is one culture and in particular deaf blind she that's kind of her specialty and so we always signed in the house we always had deaf people there we all, i mean we all learned that language growing up and still communicate in that language and when we hang out with my mom we you know there's always some friend or interpreter or family member that's uh, there who is in the ASL culture and then I had the fact that both of my parents were raised by people who were born in the early 1900s. Just so happened that my mom's mom had her at 40. That's, that was kind of unheard of, but she was born in 1903. So culturally, they were a generation older. My dad's mom died giving birth to him. And so he was raised by his, I think his aunt, who had already raised 13 children on a farm in South Dakota. So very different old world kind of view. So there was that, their, their naivete almost, you know. And then I had the cultural difference. Seattle has a lot of Asian cultures, a lot of Nordic cultures, and a lot of um, transient cultures. So the, the Vietnamese culture is kind of huge uh, in my life at this time because there was a lot of influx of people after the Vietnam War who were coming into Seattle. So a lot of my best friends were Vietnamese. There were some Chinese, but not many. Um, Chinatown actually changed to be called the International District because it was, it was so international. Um, later in life, there were a lot of Japanese people and Japanese culture because of the internment camps and because we're so close to Hawaii and they have such a kinship. So those cultures played a huge part in my life. And then you have just the culture that is Seattle, which is the me do it. I can do, and you, we, you want to start a company, do it. You can do anything you want. You can be anyone you want to be, you know? So there was kind of that culture. And then there was kind of the old staunch um, longshoreman and prim and proper teacher and that kind of thing. So you had to learn to speak that language. So I just understood by the time I was 10 or 11 that, oh, oh, this is this language for this group. And it was almost, it was good in some ways, but then it also kind of is like, well, who are you? Who, what's your culture? What's your language? What do you think? No, nope. okay, don't get to think. <laughs> That's dangerous, you know? So there was kind of a struggle in, inside of me. It's like certain things that I'd have to hide in certain communities and with certain people. And I mean, I, when you were discussing it, I was thinking how wonderful that is to be around such a multicultural, but it didn't occur to me that then you would not have your own identity as easily. Mm -hmm. And so in that regard, knowing who you are is, that's huge. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still trying to figure it out. And frankly, you know, I, that played a part of the extinction burst of my marriage. I was married for yeah. 26 years 
but we had no business being married to each other. <laughs> we were horrible for each other. <laughs> well, that, I mean, that happens a lot. I yeah. think that's not uncommon, unfortunately. So you, you uh, finished school and uh, then now you're going to college. You're mm -hmm. in a bad relationship, you told me. Mm -hmm. So catch us up through college. Sure. So um, when I graduated from high school, uh, I, I was not a fan of, I am not a fan of the public system, the public school system. So I had shit grades and my, both my parents went to Seattle University. It's a Jesuit university. It's an amazing college. And both my sisters were there. My father was the associate dean of science and engineering. So, you know, that's of course where I would apply. You get a discount. They had, they had a phenomenal discount for teachers, kids there because normally it's, it, well, it's very expensive school. Anyway, so I applied and denied. <laughs> so they said, you know, if you can prove that you are successful at college um, and go somewhere else for a year and reapply, we'll check you out that. So I did. I went to Seattle Central, got straight A's. Um, and then I, I got in the next year, was on the dean's list three years in a row and uh, got a degree in mass communication broadcast journalism and a minor in history. It took me wow. six years because I had to, I had to work full time, because even though my through my dad's discount, it was it was still super expensive, and I was living, um, you know, with a gentleman, and we had bills to pay. A gentleman, it was a horrible relationship, but I decided so bad. Hey, why don't we just get married? <laughs> oh my gosh! So wait, this is the person you married? Yeah. Holy horrible. cow! Okay, yeah. I thought it was two separate. All right, all right. So you're in this relationship with this person that's still. <laughs> Don't you want to slap your past self sometimes? Like, oh, geez, you... like, girl, you wrote it in your journal. You know he was no good. <laughs> <laughs> See, and I would be telling you you need to journal to figure that out, but it didn't matter. <laughs> no. I'm like, confirmed. He is not for me. <laughs> Let's get married. Okay, yeah. so you marry the guy that you're with that's totally been dysfunctional. Yeah. <laughs> you know, our dysfunction spoke to each other, and that was a lesson that I learned throughout our relationship and then in having children is that our dysfunctions were so familiar. It was a, it was a warm, fuzzy sweater that, I, that was very familiar to me. And that's why there were parts that I felt safe. The other part was that he was 14 years older than me and he was well-established in his job. And I had a lot of fear. You know, I had, I had been, man, I had been just trying to get three square and a pillow, you know, for years. I was yeah. tired. And this relationship was comfortable enough that I thought, okay, good. This, this will be safe. And it was safe. It was safe. It allowed me to grow up. That, that was when I started to grow up was when I got married and had children. It's like, okay, now you can safely be a child as you raise your kids. Wow. How tough. Yeah. And not fair. Not fair. <laughs> not fair to me. Not fair to my kids. Not fair to my ex-husband. I mean, but whatever, <laughs> you know, I can't do anything about it now. Right. You can learn from it and you can move forward from it. You can apologize for it, but you're right. And I get that safe because I mean, I got married this to this and it's the same situation. It was not a good relationship, but there were a lot of good parts to it. And that's the thing that I think people who haven't experienced this or are in denial don't understand it's not like you're getting the shit beat out of you every day. No, no. Just, just your emotions. Get, it's get more insidious torture. than that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's and it's not all the time. And there are these lists of things that are good about the relationship usually too. And there's this constant internal battle of, well, yeah, but you're going to trade it and you, it's just going to be different levels of things that you like and you don't like, which isn't true. But I understand safety. Safety is a lot of things. And, mm-hmm. and man, it goes a long way. And I I only stayed 11 years, not 26. But, you know, it was very safe and that's very comfortable. So I get it. And in my experience, um, this was another thing I learned from my ex-husband is something that it's a concept I call micro boundary breaches. And it's what a bully does is they push just a little bit. Are you going to take this? Oh, hey, take that. All right, good. I'm going to push a little harder. You know, they push at the edges of your boundaries. And that's how they get in. And it's those micro fractures. It's those little tiny breaches that are the most dangerous. You know, a big boundary breach, because you come at me, it is on. Trust me. I have cut a bitch. I know. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Amen, sister. I will slash some tires. With you. That's right. Yes. <laughs> you know, but, you know, you, you try and walk on me. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead and walk all over me. You know, that's the kind of bullshit that I had been trained in. And frankly, that's how pedophiles get in. That's how serial killers get in. That's how rapists get in. That's how all of the, you know, and you got to forgive yourself for that. Because you, when you're trained to accept that, that's what you do. You only do better when you know better, you know. And it takes practice. It's not easy. You have to identify those micro boundary breaches and then you got to address them, you know, and you got to be vulnerable. Hey, that hurt my feelings when you said that. When you said that, this is what I heard, you know, and a bully or a narcissist is going to toss you up in a word salad so that you just don't even know what the hell is going on. And that's, that took me a long time to get out of, to understand that, oh, you, you, I, I mapped out his shit. I mapped out his culture, finally. Right. It's like, oh, you go to, what are you talking about? I don't know, to anger. And if that doesn't work, then you go to, you're right. You're right. I need to get better. Will you help me with that? And then when that, I mean, it was just this triangle. And it took me a while to figure that shit out. But now it's like, oh, I see you. And I see you boo all over the place. So, you know, yeah. that, that was a, a great lesson for me to learn. And I think it was really through my children's eyes that I saw the life that I was living. Tell me about that, because that's so huge, that statement. I, I didn't have faith in myself as a mom, and that was exploited. I didn't trust myself as a mom, and I was ripped out of Seattle and moved to North Bend, which is a tiny town up in the mountains, and raising three kids. I had um, three kids in three years. I had uh, um, my first daughter and then I had twins. And they were all born in distress and all born four pounds, some under. And it was, it was hard. I, I didn't know how to cook. <laughs> you know, both my parents grew up in convents. They didn't, know, they didn't know how to cook. I didn't know how to cook. I had to learn, you know. And just watching my kids struggle, I, I, felt, I felt their emotions. I, I should say I'm an, I'm an ENFP on the Myers-Briggs and on the Colby. I'm a quick start. There's just, I, I'm an empath. I can feel other people's feelings. And that, I think, also helped me survive along the way. But it also is quite painful, you know, to watch your children struggle. And I made some serious mistakes in trying to solve their problems for them, trying to take their pain from them. I, I robbed them of a lot of natural consequences. 
And those are critical as humans. We need natural consequences. And I think, frankly, we are living in a world of people who have been robbed of natural consequences. And they are just plain, you know, you, I want to bend them over my knee and spank them and say, wrong. <laughs> this inappropriate behavior, this is the natural consequence for that. <laughs> you know? but, I you know, amen you know. that. So my children suffered from, um, and this is their story to tell, so I'm not going to go into it too much. But um, my youngest daughter has been hospitalized several times for suicidal ideation. She also is an empath and um, just struggles to this day. You know, she's very open with her struggle. She's now an adult and they, they finally have diagnosed her as bipolar. But, you know, it, just watching them and realizing that I was all by myself. My husband, he, you know, he used to say all the time, you're the one who wanted kids. I didn't want kids, you know? So it was like, oh, so that means that it's on me. Or just basically everything that's like, that's your job. You're a stay-at-home mom. So everything is your job. I mean, everything from mowing the lawn to painting the house to fixing a, a broken whatever, everything was my job. So watching my children suffer, there was one moment where my ex-husband said, well, first of all, just the fact that we had lived in a loveless marriage and this is humiliating for me to say because I'm an extremely sexual being, but we lived in a sexless marriage for a very long time, way too freaking long. And we didn't even like each other at this point. You know, I just wanted to keep my kids alive. I wanted them to be happy and healthy. And that was all I was focused on. And one day my ex-husband said to me, I had called him because my son had been in a car accident. And I said, I'm on my way um, to pick up Emma from the hospital because she was coming home that day. And I said, my son has you know, been in an accident. He's taking care of everything. He's getting photos of the, all the stuff and the insurance. And it was the other person's fault. Um, but his car is undrivable. Can you call a tow truck? And he just went off on me. You know, it's like, you do it. I'm at work. I'm busy. Blah, blah, blah. And then he sends me this long text message about how, how hard his life is and how mean everybody is to him and all that he does and gives and, you know, all the fancy cars we drive and the nice purses we have. And the very last line was, I want you to think about what your life would be like without me. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Oh, man, it would be so good. I do everything by myself anyway. Why would I want you and your negative energy? I don't even get laid. What the? I want out. It was the very next day that I went to see a lawyer and start making my plan. That's amazing. It's interesting when you're... <laughs> It's interesting when you're going through all the motions and a statement like that gets landed on your lap. Like, what would your life look like without me? Thinking that that's some sort of horrible threat. Yeah. And you're like, oh, okay. I'll, I did that. And it looks beautiful. Mm -hmm. You know, I, so he, he used that threat a lot because he had, he had a lot of money. We lived a very good life. We traveled very well. Um, I had nice things. However, it was not a happy life. And he knew that I knew that if I left, everything that he had was inherited and I would get nothing. He had kept his salary at a very low rate so that even, even if I got anything, the courts couldn't touch any of his real money. So I, I mean, I really thought about it. I, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to live in my mom's basement. It's a sweet house. 
you know, that's fine. I, I can work. I have marketable skills. I had been, I had been working in the nonprofit field this entire time because that was another struggle I had was he didn't want me working. So I founded a nonprofit, which put, um, college educated women who were stay at home moms together with other nonprofits. So they didn't feel like I did, you know, kind of useless. So I did a lot of working type work stuff at the time. I just did it while the kids were at school. I also taught sign language in the kids' school and stuff like that to be around my kids and was the vice president of the school's foundation and PTA and all that good stuff. So I knew I had marketable skills. And I frankly, I didn't care. I just wanted out at that point. But at that point, I was old enough to know, yeah, it's scary as hell. And the worst thing that could happen is not that bad. So go for it. And frankly, if I could have seen the life that I have now, then, oh my God, I would have, I would have ran. <laughs> I would have gotten yeah. out of there. I didn't even know how to be loved or to love. And I'm just so grateful for the life that I have now. I couldn't have even imagined it could be this good. That's fantastic. And yeah, if you had known, you would have gotten out sooner. But we also have to hit that bottom. You have to get to that point. And it mm -hmm. takes that. I, I want to ask, how is your relationship with the kids now? And what were their feelings through the divorce? It was very hard, very hard. They didn't understand. Um, they understood because they knew their dad, um, but they didn't understand why, well, you took it. You always took it. <laughs> why now? You know, why now are you leaving? And actually, I didn't leave. He left. He, he left the day I asked for a divorce. I guess it was two days later. I don't know. It's all kind of a, a hazy blur. And we've never spoken since. Not a word. Wow. How old were the kids? Uh, 17 and 19. So my oldest okay. was off in college and um, the twins were going to be seniors. Okay. So and I, he I think didn't have they, much of a con contact with them? He did, um, but he moved back to Seattle and they, they had their relationship with him. He's a very, he, he has issues. I mean, he, frankly, I, I think he has some serious issues, <laughs> but they understand how they have to deal with him. I think there was a part of them too that was mad. It's like, no, man, you are our buffer. You were the one who took oh. care of him and who dealt with him and who protected us from him. And now they don't get that, but they get to figure out how to have a different relationship with their dad. Unfortunately, one of the first things that he said to the kids was, I'm done parenting. So, you know, but he also pays for everything. He paid for all of their phones, all of their cars, all of their college, all of their clothes. You know, I mean, he still financially will help them. Um, but, you know, that's, I think they, they go out to dinner and stuff. They, we don't really talk much about it. And that's what happened. I had the same conversation with my 20-year-old son today. Mm -hmm. You know, you you have to navigate your relationship with your dad and I want you to have one. I don't know what that looks like. And honestly, it's none of my business. Mm -hmm. And when you're an adult child, you navigate your relationship with me because it shifts. I don't have to parent you anymore the, the way I did, but I'm still here for advice. I'm still here to talk to you. And we're not, I'm not your parent. And I'm not your friend. I'm sort of a hybrid in between because I'm not my kids friends before they're adults at, mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, I, I just let them know, you know, it morphs and it changes. And, you know, he said, I don't think I'm really going to, I don't really have a relationship with my dad. And I said, I'm very sorry about that. 
it has nothing to do with me. And we can talk about it to some degree, but honestly, they're completely separate issues. Mm -hmm. And it's, I mean, navigating that in a divorce where that other parent doesn't have good relationships is a little tricky. Like I want to be there for you and listen, but I can't do anything for you. And in my mind, I'm like, well, no kidding. You don't have a relationship. I mean, I really hope that there will be one, but I'm not surprised by this at all. Mm -hmm. I'm surprised it took so long for you to figure it out more. It's, they do, they do, they just kind of have to figure it out on their own. And you don't, you don't have those conversations really. I get that. Yeah. Well, and, and we're much, we're really tight. We're really close now, my kids. Right. And, but we've always been close. I mean, I was always there. Yeah. Um, the, the one thing that I have discovered, especially in my work in the courts and with a lot of um, high conflict divorces and my own kids is that the kids in a divorce don't, they don't start to process what's happened until both their parents are safe. And by safe, what I mean is they both have a life. So their dad was kind of all over the place for about a year and a half. And I've found this to be true that um, there's a real difference between the one who was left and the lever. The one who leaves has been thinking about it for a long time. Frankly, I remember when I first started thinking about divorce, the kids were probably in grade school. And my ex-husband said, I don't even like you. And I said, I don't even like you. So what are we going to do about that? And we both realized that, oh, we can't have this conversation. This is really heavy. And we both stuffed it down. <laughs> you know, so we'd been thinking about it for a long time. The one who's left often thinks, well, what changed? I haven't changed. Nothing's changed. So why are you changing the rules? So he had to process that. Um, that was five years ago, and I met, who is now my fiancé, four years ago. That was very hard for my kids, but they really like him a lot. They like him, they respect him, they're like, oh, he's for you. You guys are perfect for each other. And so once I had happiness, then their dad met someone, and she moved in, and they struggled with that because she didn't speak English, so it was very difficult for them to kind of wrap their brain around around that. But he's they've calmed into it you know it's like well that's that's his life that's what he's he's doing now so once we were safe then they got to process it right. and my youngest daughter who had been in and out of the hospital again uh, this is her story to tell but she she was a self-harmer um, and she self-harmed in a different way which was she starved herself and her organs started to shut down and um, that was when the family kind of came together and she was always the br the barometer for the family and the dysfunction. And there's usually a kid in there. I was the kid for my family where it's like, Oh no, no, no. Focus all your hatred and rage on me. Um, that's what I'm the rage vessel. <laughs> you know. And she, so she, that's really what she was doing for her dad. She was trying to have a relationship with her dad and it just, it wasn't going to happen. It wasn't going to be what she wanted. You know, he, he's a very much a pick a golden child and pick a, a demon child. And then, you know, that, that's just what he did. That's, you know, so he doesn't even know how to have a relationship with her. She looks exactly like me. She sounds like me. We, we have the same mannerisms. It's just not in the cards for her. They do have a relationship now. Um, and we did communicate by text over this time because he was willing to fly her and stay with her in the hospital different times. He really did step up to the best of his ability at the time. And he flew her to the only, um, eating disorder clinic in the nation, I believe, in Colorado. And 
she got better. Um, now she's in, well, she's always been in counseling, but she's now they've diagnosed her as bipolar. They know what's going on. She's very active and always has been in her mental health care. And she's picking a career that she enjoys and she lives on her own. And she's, I think she's happy now. We talk all the time and she comes over to visit and she just adores my fiance and his kids. And so I think the family's all calmed down and the kids are kind of processing it and they're done. They're, they're growing up really. That's just really what happens as they grow up. They have their reality of growing up in that household and I have mine (laughs) and both are equally valid. And completely different and that's okay. Yeah. And I apologize to them for not being a better mom. When I knew better, I do better and I do better now. That's just the thing. I'm like, you know, there's no perfect person. So there's not a perfect mom and there's not a perfect kid and there's not a perfect situation. And you, we're all winging it and trying to do the best that we can in, I mean, I always was trying to do the best that I could. I wasn't trying to not do a good job. So (laughs) You know, you come out of that like, hey, I'm sorry, but even retrospectively, I don't look at it and go, wow, I was really off that day. You know what? Mm-hmm. I was really, you really are just doing the best job that you can. And, and all the realities are different. And we're all, and we're like, we're, were we all in the same house? I mean, my mm-hmm. sister and I, same thing. We have completely different viewpoints of growing up. And I'm like, we were in the same room. Yeah. But our perceptions are different. So you're right. They're all equally as valid. Now I, I want to focus on you. You went through all of this trauma. You grew up with your kids in a very dysfunctional marriage, trying to find your way, working without really working. I, I applaud. I love that part of this. Where you're like, well, I was doing this and I was doing this. And I'm like, you were doing a lot, but not technically working. So right, nice right. loophole there. Mm-hmm. It worked. <laughs> It did work. I love it. So we know what you went through and how hard that was. What were some of the things that really got you through and how did you find your purpose with what you're doing now? Well, I don't, I don't think that you ever find your purpose. I think your purpose finds you in hindsight. Only looking back, can you say, oh, that's the arc of my life. You know, you don't, you don't ever you know, I don't even know where I'm going to end up. (laughs) I just know the themes of my life. And it's like, oh, connecting, connecting and communicating and understanding why people act and react the way they do. Why people, what is the purpose of the emotions that we have to go through? What, what is, we all just want to be seen and heard and connect. That's all we want. I just wanted to connect with people my whole life, a real me, you know, to, to be seen and heard. And so that was always my struggle. That was one of the reasons that I founded that nonprofit, connecting educated stay-at-home parents, because there were actually a couple dads in there too, with nonprofits that would benefit from them. Because I see you, I see your value, I see your struggle. Because I was not, I should not have been a stay-at-home mom. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> Both my parents worked my whole life. I, I didn't, you know, I had the beaver cleaver idea of what staying at home was. I, I don't know. So it, um, it really just kind of morphed into that's what I'm good at. And when I realized that other people aren't good at that, it's like, well, clearly he means this and he says this because he feels this way. And he uses the word see in everything that he does because he's a kinesthetic learner. And, you know, it's just like... Right. Also being a nerd, I read voraciously. 
So I took in a lot of information and a lot of scholarly books at that time to try and understand what was happening with my daughter. I also went through, we were very lucky in Seattle to have Marsha Linehan of the Linehan or Lineham, I can't remember exactly, of the, um, she's the mother of dialectical behavior therapy. And she had a program, which was a beta program run through the University of Washington and Children's Hospital. And we were lucky enough to be involved in it. And that blew my mind. That just really, I grew exponentially in that. And it sort of coalesced all the different understandings. You know, it just really um, brought in how we take in information. So um, your love language, your Myers-Briggs, your Colby score, your Fascinate, your, you know, all of those different things. How do you perceive? What color are your glasses? <laughs> you know, and along with, um, this is how other people perceive me. Okay, why do they perceive me this way? It's because of the way that they are. Are they, are they um, introverts or extroverts? Are they... Uh, just all of the different boxes and labels and all of that. And the ladder of inference is thrown in there. So it's like, okay, well, every interaction has a couple of things. It's got some assumptions. It's got some expectations. It's got some judgments and it's got some feelings. Okay. Okay. You know, so it's everything coalesced for me. And I understood how people could get to really being seen and heard. And it kind of morphed into, I didn't want to go into counseling. I didn't want to go into kind of the self-help guru stuff because that's really not me. I mean, it ends up, we all, frankly, I think we all, life is self-help. <laughs> Business is self-help. But I, people are so freaking defensive. You throw in the presidential election. Okay, well, that's where it really is like, all right, come on. We're not even speaking the same language here, people. We need to understand what we're saying, why people would stop isolating, stop surrounding yourself with the same people. At the same time, I moved to a different part of the state to be with my fiance. And um, I'm just going to call him Seth because I really, every time I hear that word fiance, I think of um, the Seinfeld. Seinfeld. Yeah. Here's my fiance. fiance. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god it's somebody who gets me because <laughs> i would just kept my mouth shut the whole time it doesn't mean it, that was one of those things where it's like it doesn't mean to everyone else what it means to me so just let it go <laughs> right <laughs> oh that was awesome sorry everyone we digress in a really wonderful if anybody hasn't seen the seinfeld fiance skit just youtube that oh my god it's so funny Anyway, I love Elaine. So, yeah, Seth. <laughs> but I moved to a different part of the state, which is really Trump country. Now, remember, I'm a C-town chick raised by two hippies. So, woo, paradigm shift. I mean, I thought I was being punked for like the first six months here. It is just so different. <clears throat> but the, I really realized that we really are in different worlds. People are not talking to each other outside of their own community. And because of that, they don't understand each other. So that's the, the whole purpose of me writing my book, starting my podcast and starting my business to help people, especially who are in high stress, high stakes fields, because you're, when you're in fight or flight, it's harder to listen. And it's harder to communicate. And if you're just trying to run your business, you're a small business person, or you are in a large corporation and you're trying to lead a team, 
um, at the same time, there were a lot of new ideas coming out. So there had always been strengths finders and there had been the Myers-Briggs to kind of help people understand how to work better together. Well, now there's this whole new thing with the Colbay score, which I, I actually really dig. I, um, I took the Colbay A index and that's a really cool thing. But, it, you know, we're, like I say, we're all unique, but with a theme. And boxes and labels are only good as long as they serve you. If they are used to minimize and dismiss, oh, they're pointless. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone use the excuse of being um, an intuitive or I'm an ENFP, which means I have that real squirrel you know, syndrome. I, if I had a nickel for every time I heard, heard someone use that as an excuse to dismiss their behavior, it's like, no, 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 no. That's just to give you a heads up that, hey, you, you got to set a timer to focus because <laughs> it's not your strong suit, <laughs> you know? No kidding. I love all those tests. I'm like a test junkie because I think it's a self-development, self-improvement thing. Mm -hmm. I love the strengths finder. I love mm -hmm. that. I'm an ENFJ. I, I mean, my love language is a split between quality time and physical contact. So I want to mm -hmm. have sex basically. Not mm -hmm. with everyone. <laughs> Very monogamous. Let me preface that. But you know, like that's, that's my favorite in my relationship because it's physical contact and quality time just mm -hmm. how does that not make sense to everyone else right but it is we have done it with all of our kids because it it was so I took um Myers-Briggs my freshman year of college when I was 17 and what I learned was that there are things about your personality that you might not love mm -hmm. and it doesn't mean you get to eliminate those but it does mean that you're conscious of them so perhaps you can use them in a different way mm-hmm Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and that's, why I, that's why I love the dialectical behavior therapy, the, the, uh, the acronym is DBT, um, because one of the main tenets is this, is, this is not the life you want, this is the life you have, so now what are you going to do? And that was a real paradigm shift for a lot of people in the room, let me tell you, it's like, yeah, but, but this and this and this, like, right, yeah, you don't, you don't want to be bipolar, I get it, but that's the life you have, so what are you going to do? And I, I love that because I'm, I'm a doer. I'm like, on this Colbay score, it, um, I'm going to take a peek at it here. It, it measures four things and it's a conative as well as a cognitive test. Um, at, there's one that's called fact finder, follow through, quick start and implementer. So the fact finder, you know, I bet you and I both would be way off. I'm a six fact finder because I love to research. Let's dig in there. Let's see why, 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 why. And the follow through. Yeah. I'm a straight up two on that. That is yeah. not, my, <laughs> not my strength. You know, it's like, can I outsource that? Can, can you? Exactly. Well, okay. Isn't that a good point? The more you learn about yourself mm -hmm. and how you interact with people and a business, if you're mm -hmm. in some sort of entrepreneurship or you're higher level in business, wouldn't it be great if people use that to see, okay, well, these are my strengths and this is what I should outsource. Yes. Yes. Someone and asked that's... me once, are you good at everything you do? Yeah. I don't do the things I'm not good at. Right. Yep. It's not, I'm good at everything, just everything mm -hmm. that I do, because I really try hard. If you're good at something that I'm not good at, why not let you shine? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. wouldn't that create a lot less angst? How much do you use this when you're working with people with the anger and stuff? Um, I use it a lot because I think I don't, you know, they say, sell people what they 
uh, want, and then you give them what they need. <laughs> so someone who has a dysfunctional team or who has experienced uh, maybe some fraud in, in their business, they, they call me in to kind of build up their teams and to help people communicate. But really what they need to understand is how their weak boundaries have led to this situation. So I'll come in to help them build stronger teams, but really you've got to work with the individuals on their own shit so that they can <laughs> succeed. Um, and so this really helps with people understanding themselves and understanding what they're good at and who they can work with. Because you may love Susie. She may be the most awesome person. But if you guys are both a two follow through and the next one quick start, I'm an eight as a quick start. I will start a project. If you look around my house right now, I've got a half wall painted. I've got a wet bar I've been working on. I got this sound wall that I still need to, you know, <laughs> I'm a real quick start. So you know that the two of us should not work together. So even right. though our Myers-Briggs might be right on, the Colby I like because it helps build your teams. And there are two books that I absolutely love on, um, on building teams because it, it talks about really what you need as an employee and what you need, I think, for relationships too. So um, I'll give you the names of those two. What I think is interesting is how much effort, because you just said relationships, First of all, it's great to know what your strengths are and your weaknesses because you can let people shine and you can take some of the pressure off yourself. Mm -hmm. You can also, you, it pinpoints where you can work on things. If that's, if you wanted to work on follow through, you would, I mean, it's clear that would be the place for self-improvement if mm -hmm. you so desired, but, or find that person to balance that so that you don't have to improve that. The interesting thing is that every job you've ever gone to gives you a job description Mm -hmm. So you know what the expectations are mm -hmm. and you can have a conversation about that. And the other thing it does is it gives evaluations sporadically and we never do that for our relationships. Mm -hmm. And I always mm -hmm. thought that that was really interesting that we focus more of our time and energy on work and then, but that's a side note. I know mm -hmm. I'm digressing. So, so true though. And frankly, everything is a relationship. Yeah. It, when we have trouble at home, oh, we got trouble at work. And when we got trouble at work, well, we got trouble at home. You know, we're whole human beings and we bring, we bring our shit with us everywhere. <laughs> so true. So you jump in where there's crisis in mm -hmm. high stress jobs to help kind of diffuse and get them on a better path individually and as a team. Yeah. And how to work together. Also how to deal with difficult clients. Um, I do a workshop on how to deal with difficult clients. I also have a workshop called uh, business bullies and boundaries. So, you know, there's a lot of bad behavior out there. There's actually a statistic that bad behavior is costing American companies $350 billion a year in everything from time wasted to fraud. That's crazy. Yeah. It's epidemic right now. I love that I love discussing in interviews the tragedy and trials that you've gone through and how you were able to deal with them and then it became a passion. Mm -hmm. I so appreciate you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you went through a lot and you really turned it into something really beautiful where you help other people in a situation at a time that you know you needed help. Yeah, right. I, I know those roads well, you know, and yeah. they don't scare me anymore. Isn't that a great thing to come yeah. away with? Yeah.
I remember my grandma, Grandma Tiny. She was she was a pip man. That one. She was unbelievable. Like I say, born in 1903, and she was a rum runner for. All <laughs> right. <laughs> She's a kick-ass woman, but and she raised my mom on her own in a time where women didn't do that, and she was 40. So just a just an awesome chick. But I remember when she was like 98 or something, 98 or 99. And she just looked at me and said, Oh, Laura, I am so tired of learning lessons. (laughs) (laughs) It just never ends, you know? (laughs) And thank God for that, frankly. Right. And like you said, it's, and isn't the journey much more fun? There's not a destination. It's yep. just a continuous journey. Laura, thank you so much for sharing with us today. I appreciate it so, so much. much. Thank Isn't you, it so much fun? Thank <laughs> you so much. See, within difficult is your greatest opportunity for growth. I love it. <laughs> thank you so much for listening in to Jen Taylor Rerouting. Like, share, and of course, comment. I welcome input with attitude. Get a copy of my book on Amazon, Hello, My Name is Warrior Princess, or check out my website, jentaylor.net. And if you still want more, sign up for one of my coaching packages.